Welcome to the CX, AI, and Outsourcing Podcast, a show about the people, technology, and economics that are shaping the customer support industry. My name is John Walter, and today we have a conversation with Benjamin Perry, a data privacy lawyer with the international law firm Ogletree Deacons. On this episode, Ben and I have an introductory conversation about new data privacy risks faced by customer support teams using AI tools. This is a very deep, wide, and important topic. We are only able to scratch the surface in this conversation. We will have subsequent episodes going into a deeper dive on specific aspects of data privacy compliance. And I'm also organizing a LinkedIn live panel discussion on this topic. So be sure to follow me on LinkedIn if you are interested in learning more. The link to my profile is provided in the show description. Now, let's get started. Ben Perry, long-term friend, data privacy lawyer with Ogletree Deacons, an international law firm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, John. Appreciate you having me on. So for a little context, me and Ben, we were classmates in law school. In our, we were in the same section first year. So for anyone who's been to law school, it's pretty much like going through boot camp with somebody. So we've been through the trenches together and I've gone off and done my thing and he's done his. Now we are reunited over this topic of data privacy as we help companies with large scale inbound customer support and utilizing artificial intelligence to manage that support. It is at the crosshairs of what's happening in the data privacy section of the bar. And so I'm grateful for this conversation. Ben, I want to start off with us going and talking about what's happening with White Castle in the state of Illinois. So there's currently a case working its way through the Illinois state court system styled Cawthorn versus White Castle Systems. The plaintiff is an employee at White Castle Food, uh, you know, the fast food company, and she alleges that White Castle violated Illinois state law by not first obtaining her statutorily mandated consent prior to collecting the biometric identifiers contained in her fingerprint. Print. And just to provide some context, the White Castle food chain requires its employees to use their fingerprint to access the company's system. Now, under the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA, Ben, am I pronouncing that correct? Is it BIPA? Is that how you data privacy guys do it? Yeah, BIPA. Yeah. A party may not, without consent, collect, capture, purchase, receive through trade, or otherwise obtain a biometric identifier. And further, a party may not disclose, redisclose, or otherwise disseminate an identifier without prior consent. And in February of this year, the Illinois Supreme Court has ruled that each scan or transmission of a person's biometric identifier is a separate violation of the state law. So what's happening is these employees clocking in and clocking out and perhaps doing all other types of activities. And so thousands of employees, I think 9,000 person class action, scanning back to scanning activity over a period of five years. White Castle's estimating that their damages might be at 17 billion dollars. This is shocking. And when I see this, I can't help but think about what's happening in the customer support industry, where you have established companies very attracted to new technology that's capable of doing amazing things that can save a lot of money. And they are relying upon innovative, but sometimes new companies to develop this technology and to implement it. And I just think it's a ticking time bomb for somebody to make a misstep similar to what happened with White Castle and potentially face billions of dollars in damages. What are your thoughts on this in the voice support context? Well, for starters, I think that this was one of those things where it was a law that was implemented with good intentions, (laughs) and this wasn't really how it was intended to apply, but that's 
what the law says. And then to make matters worse, the Illinois Supreme Court kind of compounded the issue by not only saying that there doesn't have to be any harm, that just a bare violation of the statute is enough, but that each separate scan was a separate violation, which is why the damages were so high in the White Castle case. I know there's been talks in Illinois about amending the law because it's been bad for business, but the reality is, is that these laws aren't going away. Lots and lots of states have proposed laws modeled after BIPA, and New York is a great example. It's not really exactly the same. It more has to do with uh, AI leveraged into cameras and providing proper signage of that. But similar to BIPA, it has a private right of action, and that's already been the next kind of hotbed of litigation following BIPA. Something that's interesting is looking at the statute is it appears that the transmission of biometric data may be a violation. So I'm curious about if someone's biometric data is utilized. Of course, you know, one call might come in from a customer. And then if this data is utilized in some way where it is transmitted and some type of AI training, and there are multiple transmissions that may occur based on the original data that multiply this cause of action, similar to how there were multiple transmissions with individual fingerprints. I'm not sure if that's a realistic thought. Yeah, I think that's a, a valid concern, especially the way it's worded, that they may not disclose, redisclose, or otherwise disseminate. I mean, that could, in theory, depending on how many times this biometric template is scanned or shared or whatever, it could kind of have that same snowball effect that you're seeing with biometric fingerprint scanners for, for work purposes. Interesting. So when it comes to voice, help me understand what's happening with voice biometrics. I understand a fingerprint as an identifier. I understand facial scans as an identifier. Well, what type of data in a voice is constitutes biometric? It's essentially a voice print is what they call it. And I'll give an example of how that sort of information could be considered sensitive or you know harmful if it were to be disseminated. I logged into my retirement account the other day and it prompted me to set up a voice print that was used to identify me to make sure it was actually me as opposed to, I guess, collecting certain confidential information like my social or something like that. So in theory, if that becomes more widespread, people could use that information if they gained it to recreate your voice and potentially gain access to accounts where that's the safeguard. And as we've seen with artificial intelligence created videos, that is clearly a concern if somebody can create a video with your voice and use that to maybe gain access to these places where your voice is kind of used as your password. So there are a lot of, of risks surrounding that. And like I said, most of these biometric definitions, which will usually vary by state are often incredibly broad, but most of them do specifically say voice print as one of the parts of those definitions of what constitutes biometrics. Very interesting. So the voice cloning topic is very interesting. I've seen some demos where it appears that, you know, you can record a few minutes of a person's voice and then all of a sudden they can cause AI, like a bot, to speak in that voice. And there's an interesting company called Sanas, S-A-N-A-S, that has traditionally been used for helping agents in a foreign country when they're calling into a U.S. customer or customers calling to them that's inbound for the company, that they are changing the accent of the agent. So it's easier to understand. So imagine someone from India has a very strong accent, easier for the U.S. customer to comprehend what's being said. But I understand that that same technology can be used to mimic an alternative voice voice entirely. You know, you can create a template voice. And so, so you could have a man in Bangladesh speaking on the phone to a female customer in New York City. And it actually sounds like a female customer service agent talking to a, like a female customer. And so it's very interesting stuff. So I can understand why you can really impersonate somebody very easily. But when it comes to like in your instance where you are talking with your 
bank and they are authenticating you by your voice, isn't there a risk? I put a lot of content out on LinkedIn, I have this podcast. I mean, my biometric data, my voice prints out there. You know what I'm saying? And it can be captured and somebody could call into that bank. Is that a risk? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think to the extent that that's going to be used going forward, it will likely be used in conjunction with other information. So for example, they may verify your voice as kind of a gatekeeping function. And I don't really know what happens if you're raspy and you sound different that day, but I would suspect that they're also going to require some other level of authentication kind of as a dual layered approach, because as you point out, your voice could be available from a variety of different public sources. Um, That's how I imagine it will probably be used going forward. So let's look at the legal risks that may be faced by a company when it comes to obtaining voice biometric data without their consent. Does it vary at all based on the intended use for that voice print? Or is it just a flat penalty? It seems like in Illinois it's a flat penalty, but you know, because it can be used for different purposes. You have the, the identifying of the caller, like it, your bank did, or it could be to gather demographic information, or it could be useful for something like developing artificial voices in the future that are natural and more empathetic sounding. So does that matter what they use it for? Uh, it does, although it will depend on where you are, obviously. So BIPA, and there are several biometric-specific laws like BIPA. There's one in Washington, one in Texas, and now in New York. But there's also a handful of comprehensive state privacy laws like CCPA in California is a great example. And there's now at least four comprehensive data privacy laws that are in effect with two more soon to take effect by the end of the year and a total of 11 that'll take effect by 2026. And they all treat biometric information differently. They'll define it differently and they have different restrictions around how it can be used and shared and the disclosures you have to provide in connection with that. So one of the big things that companies have been doing is making sure their privacy policy is updated to reflect whether or not they collect biometric information. And if so, how they're using it, how they're safeguarding it and anything else that may be required under state law. And as I mentioned, they all all kind of vary because in the U.S. it's unfortunately just a patchwork of, of regulations, laws that we have. You know, Congress has talked about passing a comprehensive federal privacy bill, but we've seen how our, our Congress works or doesn't work. And even something as not controversial as that has really not seen much progress. So there's no telling when, if ever, that they would pass something like that. And even if they did, whether or not it would preempt other state laws and or allow more restrictive state laws. And on that topic of privacy policies being altered at companies in regards to this changing landscape, whenever I call customer support, I get the same disclaimer. And I know you're familiar with it too. It says, this call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. I've never heard any other type of disclaimer. And I presume that at least one company that I call has used my information for some other purpose, such as training some type of data set or building a data set for training or fine tuning or large language model or things of that nature. How much, in your opinion, protection does a basic disclaimer just saying that you're using it for quality assurance purposes? How much protection is that giving if a company is doing anything ranging from using my voice to build a data set that could be used to design a more empathetic voice for an AI system in the future, all the way to taking my call and maybe, you know, getting a transcript of it and uploading it into chat GPT <laughs> for, for quality assurance of like, of like their agents, right? You know, like, you know, making sure the agents are following the protocol. 
Well, so I will say it's especially problematic in states with comprehensive privacy laws, especially California, where you're supposed to provide notice of how you're collecting and using that information at the point of collection. So if you're collecting that information over the phone, you're required to either explain on that call how you're collecting using that information, or you can refer them to your privacy policy on your website, which hopefully would explain those uses. I think the main reason that everybody has that in the first place and why you hear it virtually wherever you are just has to do with simple state wiretap laws. You know, every state has one and they're either one party or two party consent states. And so I think it's designed to protect against that. But there now are also those considerations as far as these comprehensive privacy laws where you're supposed to explain at the point of collection, which on the phone call is when you're collecting that information over the phone, basically what information you're collecting and how it's going to be used. Okay. So you can refer to the data privacy policy on the call and that is sufficient protection. Is it, it's kind of like when you're on a website and you're, you know, clicking to consent, hardly anybody except a few nerdy people like myself on occasion who actually reads through the (laughs) privacy policy before consenting on a website, but you can do something similar on a phone call. It sounds like, do you need to give them time to review it or is it, can you just like text them a link maybe to make it more tangible? I mean, you could, but you also, I mean, depending on what you're using to text them, then you're, you start worrying about things like the Telephone Consumer Protection Act if you're using an automated system to text them. (laughs) So generally what I've seen is people just referring to the website and where the privacy policy can be found. And really, like I said, that's more of a concern in places that have these comprehensive data privacy laws and that may continue to expand. As we both know, it's a very rapidly evolving industry. So for now, I think that would be sufficient, especially in places like California. Something I've seen, it's, uh, I've seen it on LinkedIn recently. I have a friend who, um, he's a call center operator and it appears, I'm not 100% positive, but it appears that he's just taking transcripts from calls and uploading them or has, maybe has this technology team creating an API to chat GPT and is helping using chat GPT to help score the performance of the agents. And I understand the reason that this is a valuable practice is because an outsourced vendor, a BPO has multiple clients and each client will have their own specific scorecard that they've had for as a legacy for years. And they're accustomed internally to understanding what certain scores mean. And so they're interested in trying to to utilize generative AI, but within the context of existing scorecard, they find something like ChatGPT to be useful for that. But my understanding is that ChatGPT is not an entirely private network. Do you have much knowledge on the safety of uploading content into ChatGPT? Yeah, I mean, it's the same with chat GPT or really any sort of large language model that you're feeding information into is as a general rule, you should never be feeding any confidential or sensitive information into a large language model because that's how they're trained. There's really, it depends on the provider, but a lot of times there's just not really a way to know whether how that's going to be disclosed further and whether, you know, it might put that out as an output depending on what you prompted it to do and or where that information is being stored, where it goes. You really have no idea. And so, So that's been a big issue as more and more companies are incorporating this. It's getting brought into boardrooms. And so you could have confidential company information being put in there, which is especially problematic, especially if it's not public information. So there's a lot of ways in which you could run into huge issues if you're uploading any sort of confidential information, whether that's personal information or confidential company information. And there's all sorts of add-ins now where you can add in artificial intelligence powered things to Word and PowerPoint. And a lot of people do that without really understanding what information that add-in is collecting and where it's going. 
So companies are starting to take a close look around putting controls in place to make sure that stuff like that is not added onto company computers that could be maybe siphoning off information without their knowledge. And, you know, if you're talking about personal information, you have a potential data breach on your hand. With company information, if you're a publicly traded company, that could be a material cyber incident that you would have to publicly disclose in your 8K form. So there are a lot of implications for that. And, and I think companies are starting to take a very close look at how they're restricting their workers' use of those tools. I have some friends who are helping companies build their own large language models because of this. Because, you know, it's incredibly powerful technology that increases efficiency. And in the customer support context, it can help with addressing queries much more efficiently. And and that saves a lot of money. But because of these risks, it appears that one of the ways that at least I've heard to overcome this is to build your own large language model. You can perhaps have a foundation model that is from one of the big players, but then there's ways to contain it. I don't know how it all works, but I know it's definitely a trend and an important one. Well, there's a lot of uses for it, right? I mean, there are AI tools that scan resumes and automatically reject ones that don't hit the right number of keyboards or keywords. There are also, there, there was a an article that came out, I won't name the company, but they were using, instead of human recruiters, an AI system to analyze video interviews. So the candidate would record their interview on their phone or laptop and the system would scan their language, tone, and facial expressions from the videos and then assess those against traits that are considered to indicate job success at that specific company. That kind of consideration. So when you talk about legal and regulatory issues, GDPR in Europe has all sorts of restrictions around using AI for anything that could have a legal effect on you, which this is obviously one, whether you it relates to hiring somebody or termination or promotion. There are restrictions in Europe around how AI can be used and, and basically the right to object to fully automated processing. That's very interesting. I'm curious. So what? let's say for the instance of that resume evaluation process or video interview evaluation process, to what extent is it gathering a, a voice print? If they're, if they're looking at like tone of voice and things of that, is that possibly triggering it? Or is it only for like identifying? Like if you're using the data to try to, because in the White Castle case, they're using the data to try to identify the person who's accessing the system. But is it possible to stumble across and violate these rules when you're trying to use it for evaluating somebody's likelihood of succeeding on the job? That will depend, obviously, on where you are, because first of all, a lot of U.S. state privacy laws, most don't apply to employees. Currently, the CCPA in California is the only one that applies to employee data. But then, you know, that's just the comprehensive laws. There's also the biometric specific laws like BIPA that do apply to employees. And really, it comes up in a variety of contexts. It can be as simple as some drive-throughs had artificial intelligence built into their drive-through systems. And so it was analyzing, I'm not exactly sure the extent, to which what it was analyzing, I don't know if it was the interaction or you know measuring customer happiness, but they were using some sort of AI powered tool and they got hit with a similar biometrics lawsuit. So yeah, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that you're storing it for long periods of time. If you're collecting it and analyzing it, then you could be subject to all these biometrics laws. Yeah. That is just terrifying because because it's I mean it's amazing this in the call center context you know they're just doing robust data analysis on calls right so like the customers are calling in of course they ask it being recorded for quality assurance purposes I don't know whether or not that's a sufficient disclaimer but then they're taking that call and they're just dicing it up they're doing everything they can to get some value out of it they're trying to understand at each moment in the call like how happy is the agent and then how how happy is the customer and how is that changing from the beginning to the end. What 
What are the keywords? What's everything? And I presume that some of this information is stored for a variety of purposes. I know some groups are out there trying to identify the customer satisfaction on individual calls and taking this type of data and then using it to determine the customer's likelihood of being a loyal returning customer over the long term. And so they're holding on to that data because they, they know that data point will be valuable if based on previous experiences and then also looking into future experiences. You can kind of create an algorithm, evaluate a multiple experiences with a brand and tell an individual customer's likelihood of defecting or staying loyal. So Ben, thank you for taking this time to talk about this stuff because the only thing that comes to mind is everybody in customer support, every single company needs somebody like Ben to talk these things through with as you're implementing this new technology. I mean, anyone listening to this should be a bit concerned about trusting that the tech vendors that are sometimes just young people who are cobbling together technology and maybe have not even worked in the customer support industry before, they're coming to you and selling this stuff under huge pressure to generate their sometimes their first sales. And I don't know if all these boxes are being checked prior to the technology hitting the market. And to Ben, so let's say that happens. Isn't it correct that both the company that is hiring this vendor and that vendor are likely both subject to liability if the vendor is crossing a boundary? Yeah. Although what you see a lot of times is the company is often the one that's named in the lawsuit because more often than not, they're the ones with deeper pockets. So for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly the company that is hiring the vendor, I think, should be probably more concerned, although vendors should be making sure they're buttoning that up as well. And yeah, just to, to provide a, another kind of example of how all this biometrics and AI can be used, it's not just at the recruitment stage that these tools are being employed. As you mentioned, it's also being used to analyze customer service calls and kind of dissect those. There's a company that I will decline to name on this podcast right now, but they have employed artificial intelligence powered tools uh, in their manufacturing warehouses to basically buzz the workers if they're putting a product in the wrong place. There's also tools that are monitoring employees' productivity. And if they, according to this software, it seems like they're not working or whatever, then there have been instances where companies have either issued warnings and sometimes even docked pay. I remember hearing an example of one where employees' pay was docked because the software was thinking that they were not working when really it's a lot harder to measure that than whether or not somebody's moving their mouse or typing on their keyboard. They could be prepping for a call or reviewing a physical document. But that's kind of the risks of, from a regulatory perspective, employing tools like that, not to mention the cultural risks that you face if somebody is constantly having to deal with something like that and having to explain themselves when really they were actually being a productive member of the team. So it certainly poses a lot of challenges and, and interesting issues. Yes. And now, Ben, I've got more questions because this is such a deep, deep topic, but we've already almost gone 30 minutes and I know your time is very valuable and I want to respect that. And so I, I want to... It's okay. I'll send you a bill later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah send the invoice <laughs> to, to my house. And what we'll do, like, I would like to pick up this conversation maybe in a few weeks and maybe a different topic, a different aspect of it, because this is a huge topic. You know, I'm very curious about demographic data and gathering all different, you know, there's so much data floating around about individuals and data is the food that AI machines consume to make these magical predictions. And so there's so much effort right now just to gather data, data, data and throw it in there. And so I want to oh, keep yeah. exploring this. But in the meantime, man, I, I just want to thank you for your time. If anyone wants to reach you, what's the best way for them to reach out if they have any legal questions? 
Uh, yeah, they can either find me on the Ogletree website and they can give me a call my direct line, which is 615-687-2217 or shoot me an email. It's just benjamin.perry at ogletree.com. And I'd be happy to talk through, consult, whatever may be. I love talking all things AI. And yeah, we've barely just scratched the surface here. There's plenty more we can dive into later. It's kind of, we haven't even talked about, you know, web scraping and the kind of battle, legal battles that are going on right now between artificial intelligence companies that scrape the web and use that information to train their models, how they're being sued for essentially uh, wrongfully taking other uh, protected information and using it to, for a commercial purpose. So there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack and uh, I definitely look forward to talking through it with you more. Yeah, well, Ben, thank you for your time, man. We'll talk soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, John. Special thanks to Benjamin Perry for taking the time to be on the show today. If you'd like to reach out to him, you can find his LinkedIn profile in the show description. And also, I want to say thanks to you for listening. I know that you are very busy, time is scarce, and there are many things you can do to entertain yourself. And the fact that you take even a portion of your day to allocate to learning these topics with me, it's amazing privilege and honor on my behalf. And so thank you. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.